What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, friends and neighbors. On this Friday morning, January 28th, welcome to the Bill Press Pod and this week's Reporters Roundtable. With Congress out of session, what looked like a quiet week in the nation's capital turned out not to be, thanks especially to Justice Stephen Breyer. He knows the law and he knows politics. So Breyer decided to step down from the court at the end of this session when Democrats still have control of the Senate and President Biden has the best chance of winning confirmation for Breyer's replacement. And we all know about that new justice at this point. We know that it will be a she, and she will make history as the first African-American woman ever on the nation's highest court. Meanwhile, the January 6th Select Committee continued its probe into the insurrection, even though Newt Gingrich, yes, Newt Gingrich, threatened them all with jail time. And yet another president got caught saying stuff that he shouldn't have on a hot mic. Okay, let's jump right in with today's all-star panel. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Editor, NBC News Digital. Hello, Ginger. Hello, glad to be here. David Jackson, National Political Correspondent for USA Today. Hi, David. Hey, Bill, how you doing? Okay, and Jason Dick, Deputy Editor for CQ Roll Call. Hello, Jason. Hello. Good morning, everybody. All right. So, Jason, let's start with uh, Justice Breyer. Uh, As Woody Allen told us, timing is everything, right? Even with the Supreme Court and for Joe Biden, Breyer's timing couldn't have been better, right? That, that's right. Uh, Democrats have a tendency to get the timing of, of Supreme Court nominees and vacancies wrong. Uh, they, the Republicans are a lot more uh, disciplined about retiring when there is a Republican president and a Republican Senate to confirm them over the last few, I don't know, decades. Uh, and, and this is why you see, you know, the, the shenanigans that happened with Merrick Garland in 2016 when Antonin Scalia died and Barack Obama nominated him and Mitch McConnell said, no, thanks. <laughs> we'll, we'll wait. <laughs> we'll wait. So this, you know, this isn't going to alter the the makeup of the court ideologically, but it is finally a, 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 a an instance where the Democrats seem to have aligned and said, like, okay, let's make sure that we can confirm somebody uh, who is, you know, sort of in line with the president's policies and, and the president's sort of I- overall approach to politics and life, uh, while while we have the power to do so, right. Uh, and so, Ginger, for a moment, there was a brief speculation about whether uh, President Biden would uh, follow through with his promise to appoint uh, the first African-American woman. Yesterday at the White House, when he accepted uh, Justice Breyer's letter of resignation, uh, the president made it clear, no doubt where he's going. Here he is. person I will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications, character, experience and integrity 
And that person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court. So, Ginger, uh, that is historic. What I find somewhat amusing about this is that uh, the president is, in effect, saying, I will not consider any man at all. I will not consider any white woman, any uh, Latina, any Asian American woman. I will only consider a black woman for this job, which is the essence of affirmative action, which is before the court this year. That's right. The court is probably going to uh, whittle away at the affirmative action programs at some of our nation's uh, private and public schools. Uh, but you're right. He said he made a promise and he was going to stick to it. Um, it might be the only time uh, that white men who thought that uh, for a long time since their days um, in contract law in law school that they could be a Supreme Court justice one day uh, don't really have that ability to to think that it could be them this time because it, it won't be. It will be a black woman. Um, and Biden's point is that there are lots of qualified and have been lots of qualified black women for the court, and none of them have been nominated so far, and it's time um, that that was remedied. Um, obviously, we heard absolutely predictable criticism from the right, that that mm -hmm. meant he wasn't looking for the most qualified candidate. He was looking for a candidate that fit a certain profile. Um, I think we're going to hear Democrats and the White House push back on that. And I think we're also going to see the president take a long time. You know, it's not going to be next week that he comes out and, and names a nominee, even if we all know that Kentonji Brown Jackson is at the top of his list. Um, and they, the White House feels, uh, we understand that, um, that being more deliberative, taking some time, going over lots of candidates might sort of push back at some of that criticism that they didn't just pick someone mm -hmm. only because of their their skin color and, and their, their being a woman. But the president did say he'll, he'll make his choice by the end of February, which gives him like roughly five weeks, I guess, to do that deliberation. Uh, you talk about David. Um, it's not all politics, but there is a lot of politics in this decision. I mean, is this... Uh, uh, an opportunity for Biden and for Democrats? Well, they certainly see it that way. Um, we've got, obviously, they're they are struggling in terms of the midterm elections. And I think that there are some people, in fact, I know there are some people in the party who see this as an opportunity to, to energize uh, progressive and Democratic voters, particularly uh, voters of color. And they, I think they're going to go all out to promote this nominee, who I'm almost sure is going to be uh, Judge Brown Jackson. I think that's a done deal. And I think that... Uh, there's there's already a, a, a public relations effort to to promote her candidacy, and they they have a they have a hopes that it will uh, generate more black votes this November. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, you know, Jason, tell us a little bit about Breyer's legacy. He's been on the court for 27 years, um, and he was a man who came into the court saying, you know. Uh, I, I know how to get consensus. I know how to get people working together, right? I know how to just deal with the facts and get away from the politics. He gave an air of that yesterday, I thought, in his remarks at the White House, where he talked about uh, democracy as uh, an ongoing experiment. Here's the justice. Of course, people don't agree. But we have a country that is based on human rights, democracy, and so forth. But I'll tell you what Lincoln thought, what Washington thought, and what people today still think. It's an experiment. I say, I want you to pick just this up. It's an experiment that's still going on. Sounds a little almost old-fashioned, Jason. Yeah, and, and I feel like you're right. I mean, Breyer sort of cultivated that old-fashioned, uh, you know, sort of vibe. I mean, he, he looks like a character from 
you know, a, a different time almost. You know, he he worked uh, on the in the Senate for a while for Ted Kennedy and the Senate Judiciary Committee before becoming a judge. And you know, he he just has a very like sort of no nonsense, um, you know, amiable uh, sort of you know approach to things. Uh, there it was hard to find any Republicans who had anything bad to say about him, and they all you know sort of glommed on to that whole idea that you know that you could disagree with him without it being disagreeable. So, I mean, he was, but he, I think that, you know, some of the reason that we, we were just now kind of getting around to like, oh yeah, he was here for 27 years, you know, is that he was, you know, he was the other Clinton, uh, you know, pick uh, for the Supreme Court. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, cast such a large shadow, uh, but, but Breyer seemed to revel in that. And, and I think that, you know, his, he was very conscientious of, the uh, image of the court in, in, in that way. I mean, he's kind of a, 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 akin to John Roberts, too. Roberts is very concerned that the public, you know, view the court as an impartial institution, that it's not driven by mm-hmm. politics, even though politics does drive it in so many ways. Uh, but, you know, it, it's it, he is um, he's the best kind of fuddy-duddy, I guess, is the best way to say it. <laughs> I'm not sure he would appreciate that term, but uh, at any rate. So, Ginger, bottom line, do they have the votes? I would think it's going to be very easy for them to to move the votes ahead. Um, as um, David said, you know, this is this is a, a nominee that we think is pretty much in the pipeline is coming up. Um, Judge Kentaji Brown Jackson, she passed the Senate in June on a 53 to 44 vote. So she got Republican support then. I think it will not be surprising if she gets Republican support again, unless something really goes off the rails. She's been vetted. She's well known. Um, and I, and, you know, there was all this immediate speculation that mansion and cinema will again cause problems, but yeah. this is not their playground, right? Like, this is not a thing they want to cause problems on. They've supported the president's nominees. Manchin has been very open in supporting uh, nominees of presidents of both parties, saying presidents are entitled to make their own appointments. Um, I would be shocked if there's any type of rumbling. Don't get me wrong. We're, we're going to hear rumbling. It's just not going to be consequential rumbling that ever likely puts much in jeopardy of not being approved. Uh, and uh, David, Repo- Republicans seem to be a little flummoxed about how they handle this, even uh, Mitch McConnell um, hasn't come out full bore against anybody that that uh, Biden nominates. Here, here's uh, the Republican leader. Uh, I think yesterday, the day before, when he said, "Well, I'm going to certainly uh, consider whoever he puts up." Here's here's McConnell. So look, I'm I'm going to give the president's nominee, whoever that may be, a, a fair look and not predict on today when we don't even know who the nominee is. I might vote. Uh, and some Republicans, which is kind of amusing, David, are saying, now, there's no rush here. We have to take our time. We have to go yeah, right. slow. Right? How yeah. do they handle this, do you think? Well, uh, they don't know. They're they're kind of in a wait-and-see mode, I, I think. Uh, I agree with Ginger. I think it's a done deal, uh, and uh, Biden will get his nominee probably by Memorial Day. Uh, the only question to me is how, how much the Republicans push back and whether they seek to make the court an election issue. And uh, I, like I say, I don't think they really know right now. I know I know someone who's very involved in the uh, judicial uh, judicial background issues, and he said that there's there's already a lot of investigating of Judge Brown Jackson, but the the people he works for don't know whether they're going to use it or not. They're just going to wait and see what the, what the public thinks. But the feeling is that they will uh, they will they will raise a fuss 
and they will try to get their own voters who are very interested in Supreme Court issues excited about the fact that the, there's a new liberal joining the court. And I think I think you'll hear a little bit of shouting, but I don't think you'll hear much because obviously the Republicans are very sensitive about the racial thing. And so they don't want to be seen as attacking the first black female nominee. Mm -hmm. Uh, Meanwhile, the January 6th Select Committee, even though Congress was not in session this week, there's a lot of news on that front, particularly as they go through the documents that they received from the archives after the Supreme Court refused to um, agree with Donald Trump's claim of executive privilege. Uh, this week, I thought we saw three big uh, developments on that front. Um, there was a revelation that several states had put together fake electoral slates that they were going to send to Congress uh, at the instigation of Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and others. Uh, a memo circulating uh, that suggested the president should declare martial law uh, to require a, a new election be held, and a draft executive order showing um, that the president did not sign, but which would have required the military to seize voting machines around the country. Uh, Jamie Raskin quoted this week as saying, boy, when you add this up, this amounts to a real coup d'etat or attempted. Here is Congressman Raskin, member of the January 6th committee. We have filled in a lot more evidence that he wasn't just inciting an insurrection. He was working to organize a coup against the democracy in order to seize the presidency for another four years. And so uh, I can't imagine that the Department of Justice would not have evidence at this point. Jason, this really raises the stakes of what they're looking at. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, this is, I, I think, a an indication of how what, what we have missed in not having a bipartisan commission, a bipartisan independent commission, which, Good point. you know, yeah. that, that, I mean, this passed the House and uh, this passed the House with bipartisan support from several Republicans. Uh, and then it died in the United States Senate, despite, of course, getting 54 votes. <laughs> um, and, you know, because it, it couldn't overcome a 60 vote hurdle. Um, you know, th- we because it's only the House Select Committee, you know, Republicans have tried to really cast aspersions on this as a um, as a partisan exercise. But this is, you know, this is real oversight, and this is, you know, they're going through documents, they're doing the hard work of this, and you know, they are looking, you know, nervously at the clock too, because you know, if if Republicans do retake the House, it is hard to imagine that Kevin McCarthy, as the Speaker, would uh, continue to, uh, you know, support a select committee uh, that that is investigating Donald Trump and the efforts of of his allies. And, you know, this is, the evidence is all right there. Um, I mean, the, you know, the, I remember, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast that I host, the political theater, I was talking to Timothy Snyder, the, the author of On Tyranny, and he likened, you know, what happened on January 6th to it, the, the beer hall putsch, you know, in, in Germany, uh, which was this sort of, you know, relatively disorganized uh, effort to, uh, you know, you know, over overtake the the German government, and they came back much more organized. Now Trump, you know, won't have the Justice Department at his uh, at his beck and call uh, in in twenty twenty four, but the you know the, the effort to continue to undermine the uh, election continues at least in in politics and and the way people are trying to cast it. And we're just seeing how just how involved it was. It really was a lot more organized than we have uh, than, than than was thought. If there's an effort to undermine the government, uh, Ginger, there's also 
an effort to undermine the January 6th committee. Uh, I thought an indication of how Republicans might be getting a little nervous about how far the committee is going came last Sunday on Fox News when they they rolled Newt Gingrich out to issue this warning. Here he is. We're going to have a Republican majority in the House and a Republican majority in the Senate. And all these people who've been so tough and so mean and so nasty are going to be delivered subpoenas for every document, every conversation, every tweet, every email, uh, because I think it's clear that this, these are people who are literally just running over the law pursuing innocent people, causing them to spend thousands and thousands of dollars in legal fees for no justification. And it's basically a lynch mob. And unfortunately, the Attorney General of the United States has joined that lynch mob and is totally misusing the FBI. And I think when you have a Republican Congress, this is all going to come crashing down and the wolves are going to find out that they're now sheep and they're the ones who are in fact going to, I think, face a real risk of jail uh, for the kind of laws they're breaking. So there you go, Ginger, jail time for doing their jobs, right? Yeah, you know, I covered Newt Gingrich's 2012 campaign and and he is one who is want to make sort of empty threats. Uh, I think he thinks it gets the base riled up. And look, like Republicans have been doing this now. Um, we all can remember lock her up, the chant. Um, yeah. Trump took office and did they lock her up? No, because it's absurd. And she didn't commit any crimes and people doing their jobs and investigating and conducting oversight are not committing any crimes. So I, I, this all feels very empty to me, but it is it is talking to a segment of the population, right? And just telling them, you're entitled to be mad about this. You're entitled to think that they're doing wrong because they're committing a crime. And they listen to Newt Gingrich and they listen to other Trump allies and they say, you know what, these people are criminals and and, and we don't have to listen to them. It's really just this ongoing effort to erode American confidence in our government and our elections and the way that we do things. And, and, you know, as, as was just said, there's, there's, there's not the levers that, you know, Trump pulled every lever of power that he had at his disposal to try to overturn his defeat. It didn't work. If he runs again, surely he will try to pull as much as he can. He will not have the same levers of power. Um, so they have to find that support in other ways. And, and I think that, you know, it's, a, it's, it is a reminder that what we're watching when we watch the January 6th committee, when we watch discussions about this, that this is not something that happened and is over, right? This is something that is ongoing and it is continuously part of the American system, government, politics, equation, experiment, mm-hmm. whatever term we want to use. Um, <laughs> right. it, is a, it is a live action play happening in front of us as we try to uncover what happened in the first act, and we're not sure if we're in the second or the third. But David, getting this, doesn't this get us back to, again, the midterms and each party trying to position itself for the midterms, that this is, uh, no, Newt Gingrich has been tasked by Donald Trump and Kevin McCarthy in, the, in crafting the message Republicans ought to use in the midterms. This is a, this is one of the things they're going to use, right? Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And I don't know about jail time. I mean, obviously, but, yeah. I guess you can't be a politician today unless you uh, threaten to throw your opponent in jail. But, uh, <laughs> there will be. I mean, you're already starting to hear this let's impeach Joe Biden talk. I mean, they, they, if the Republicans do indeed take the House, there is going to be quite an uptick in investigative activity of the Biden administration. You're going to hear Right-wingers call for Biden's impeachment. I mean, that's just the world we live in right now. I confess I'm a bit of an agnostic on the January 6th, all the stuff that's coming out. I mean, 
this is all stuff we knew about at the time. We just didn't take it very seriously back in December and January. To me, the one difference is that the committee is, is, is unearthed documents and showing how mm-hmm. these things were discussed in the White House with Trump. But we still don't know how seriously Trump himself took it and whether he he was he would in fact seriously considered seizing the voting machines at the time the people in the white house said that it that it wasn't he was just venting and giving off steam and all these you know wild eyed fanatics were coming into the white house and encouraging him to do this that or the other thing but but no one really took it seriously obviously the january 6th committee took it seriously and i guess we'll find out how seriously voters take it uh, again in terms of the midterms uh, and in terms of messaging for the midterms um The New York Times lead article this morning, last year, the economy grew 5.7%, the largest annual increase since 1984. Given that, uh, Jason, uh, are the midterms as bleak for Democrats as uh, everybody's predicting? Um. It, it's it, when I saw that number, I was a little shocked myself, uh, just how much growth uh, that the, uh, the, the country experienced. Um, I think that that certainly gives Democrats an argument. The issue is that it does it prevail over inflation and and sort of the erosion of some of the the spending power of of, of that economic growth, uh, and and then also just. In, in general, what Democrats are facing is something that is very tough to overcome, even in sort of the best circumstances. You know, people get grumpy uh, in, in a president's <laughs> yeah. first midterm, uh, regardless of, of the of the economy sometimes and seek to punish uh, that party. And, and, and they're swimming against that. And then also because this is right after re, a redistricting round, you know, we, we don't know the exact outcome. I mean, it seems like Democrats did a little better than people were predicting with redistricting because of either court challenges or because, you know, some of the, the bigger states like Texas didn't look to eliminate, you know, as many Democratic seats as they could. But, you know, you see a, a high number of of open seats with a much higher number of open seats among Democrats. Uh, you got people like Jim Cooper, who's been in Congress for 30 some odd years retiring because they carved up his district in, in Nashville. Uh, you know, that adds to the uncertainty of being a Democrat. Um, th- I think the, the real wild card is more in the Senate because Senate, you know, statewide dynamics are a lot different than at the house level. I'd probably, you know, say that the the Republicans are they you, they would rather be Republicans than Democrats going into the into the midterms, but the Senate is still a little bit uh, uncertain. I mean, in in 2018, you know, the the uh, Republicans lost 41 seats in the House and and Democrats retook the majority, but the Republicans gained two seats uh, in that election cycle, even with this widespread discontent with Trump. So, it's. I, I don't think it's bleak and grim and a bloodbath in the way it's been described, but it's, you know, when you only have a five uh, seat margin in the House, that's pretty easy to lose, uh, but just because of, you know, just overall uncertainty. Yeah. Well, you know, Ginger, I'm sure when uh, Joe Biden picked up the paper this morning or when he heard this yesterday, I'm sure he heard it before he saw it in the paper, right? Uh, his response must be, why aren't I, why, why aren't I getting more credit for this? I think that we saw that during his press conference last week. And this has been a really unfortunate and I can't imagine successful Democratic message that we've heard in the last year. And we heard a lot in the Obama administration, which was, 
I know you think it hurts and your pocketbook hurts and your financial situation is difficult, but really look at these statistics. It's not that bad. It's really not that bad. No one is convinced by that, right? Mm -hmm. No one stops and says, I know I'm paying more for a gallon of milk and I have less disposable income and I'm going to buy my kid one last toy for their birthday this year. But the president said that the GDP growth was fantastic. So everything must really be great, right? It just doesn't work that way. (laughs) And and if it did, um, the American politics would look very different right now. Um, And so, yeah, it's it's great. It's great for America. It's great for the economy. It, It should be. Um, great for Biden, but they have to figure out how to make it great for people who are voting for them. Otherwise, um, it won't matter what number is splashed across the front of the New York Times uh, homepage. It, it, it will be lost on someone who's still trying to make ends meet. Messaging, messaging, messaging. Well, uh, we've covered a lot of the big news, but maybe not the biggest story of the week, which we'll get to right after the break, which is what President Biden did while Ukraine was on the brink of war. <laughs> it's the Bill Press Pod. Today's roundtable with Ginger Gibson from NBC News Digital, David Jackson, USA Today, and Jason Dick from CQ Roll Call. Take a quick break and we'll come back and pick things up from there and get to everything that we missed. And today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A, over half a million strong under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan, the Laborers Union, the backbone of the American labor movement, uh, very, very active in the construction field. Uh, They're building infrastructure even before the new infrastructure bill has kicked in. In the energy field, building old-fashioned pipelines as well as wind turbines and solar panels. Uh, and in the healthcare field, public uh, employees uh, active in healthcare. We salute the members of the Labor's Union. Thank them for their good work, their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at liuna, L-I-U-N-A dot org. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And we're 
back on this Friday, January 28th at uh, the Bill Press Pod and today's uh, roundtable, Reporters Roundtable. Jason Dick, uh, Deputy Editor of CQ Roll Call, David Jackson, National Political Correspondent for USA Today, and Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Editor of NBC News Digital. Yes, uh, on the brink of war with Ukraine, the stock market t- tottering, uh, Congress still deadlocked, even though they're out of town. And what did Joe Biden do? He went out for ice cream. Uh, Man, Fox News, this was the biggest scandal to hit the White House, I think, since Watergate, at least. Uh, Here, thanks to The Daily Show, uh, a little chorus of outrage from the hosts on Fox News. President Biden took a trip off campus today to an ice cream parlor. He just exited Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams in Washington at 225, emerged with two scoops of what appeared to be chocolate. The president yesterday went out for ice cream. Ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. Two scoops and a waffle cone. All I I have to do is run a country of 350 million. Having the time to stop by, get some ice cream. This as, of course, chaos is erupting across our own nation and now abroad. Is it appropriate at this time, Vladimir Putin, watching this commander-in-chief chomping on ice cream? Why is Putin doing this? Because he knows Biden's weak. Biden would rather have ice cream with somebody rather than stand up for Americans. Joe Biden's weakness, his feebleness, his love of ice cream. We've got inflation through the roof, and the White House gets ice cream. Even in the most dire crises, there's always a little time for ice cream. The world is falling apart thanks to his weakness, and Joe Biden gets ice cream. Look at that, a double scoop there, old Joe. Joe is not fit to serve. U.S. presidents don't just hang out at ice cream parlors and then call it a day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That is not normal. It's also not normal. Enough enough Sean Hannity, the most outrageous of all. So, Ginger, oh, my God, what's going on? Well, they have run out of... I mean, we had to go from the tree set on fire... That was losing steam, so we needed something else to be upset about. So now we've got ice cream and Biden hot mic, maybe yeah. <laughs> not so hot. We'll, we'll was... get we'll get to that. <laughs> um, all the outrage. I mean, look, like I think that reducing the U.S. foreign policy and the foreign policy of a man who served on the foreign policy, foreign affairs committee in the Senate for decades, down to ice cream, really misses what's going on here. I, you know, this is a a tremendous test right now on this White House that, you know, botched Afghanistan um, and uh, took a ton of criticism for how that was handled. Now the next big foreign policy test is here. Of course, Fox is going to see it differently. Um, they are they are hawks. They are driven by a hawk message and they are not going to like anyone who doesn't immediately want to line up tanks on the Ukrainian border and point them at, at Russia and say, you know, give me your best shot. This is this is unless you're Tucker uh, Carlson, of course. Unless you're Tucker Carlson, Carlson, right? Or 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 Donald Trump, by the way, who um, they like to imagine would be doing what they want to do right now. But let's be clear, he was he was not really interested in helping anyone that wasn't America for his four years in office. Um, So so it's much more. Ice cream is absurd. It is cold here in Washington, so there's that. But I um, I a pregnant woman haven't stopped eating ice cream through the winter, so. uh, 
uh, sympathies to Biden on that. Um, but uh, <laughs> I think that the foreign policy comparisons to ice cream are uh, not quite as as cut and dry as Fox might like well, them. Well, not to make too much of that, but by the way, I, I wish Vladimir Putin would go out for ice cream. Um, <laughs> it might smooth things, ease the tension a little bit. Jason, nobody's talking about the fact that you and I live on Capitol Hill, right? <laughs> this is a small business on Capitol Hill. I'm old enough to remember the days when Republicans supported small businesses. It was good, right, to support a small business. Yeah, and, and you know, like let's come I mean, on. like t- yeah, taking a step back. I mean, this is a a short drive, you know, from the White House down Pennsylvania Avenue to Barracks Row, and and yeah. then right to uh, Ginny's Splendid Ice Cream, which is you know delicious. It's a little expensive, uh, but uh, it it is really good ice cream. And then also, you know, he. He he's hung out with a few other uh, shopkeepers in the in the area, said hi to the Marines standing guard mm-hmm. outside the Commandant's you know residence and and Barracks Row. Um, you know this is what a a president does. You know um, I guess you know you know he, he stepping away from the script of like you know eating boiled asparagus or something. You know <laughs> and looking <laughs> dour and over charts. You know. <laughs> Or, you know, like giant, you know, maps of Ukraine yeah. should be the image. But, you know, it, the, the truth is that no matter what he does, you know, Hannity and all these folks are going to go after him. You know, but, all I can say is I, I wish he would have gone with a tan suit also. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and then we really, they all would have lost their minds and, and not known which uh, love, uh, where to attack him first. Well, David Jackson, you covered the White House for, for many years before you moved up to this exalted position of national <laughs> political correspondent. Um, Joe Biden, <laughs> uh, reporters come in and they always ask questions and they always shout out questions as they're being herded out of the room. It happened again this week, of course, when Peter Ducey from Fox tried to get in a question about inflation in the midterms <laughs> and Joe Biden not realizing his mic was still on. Kind of hard to hear Ducey's question, but here's a, you can certainly hear the president whispering his reaction. Here's that little exchange. That's a great asset. More inflation. What a stupid son of a bitch. Uh, it goes back to Reagan's hot mic moment and, <laughs> and other hard bombing in five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Big deal, David? Oh, no, not really. But, you know, I've, I've periodically done stories about presidents who saying things they wish they hadn't have said, so I had to update that one this week. <laughs> oh, bad. <laughs> it was about presidents and the press. The one it reminded me of was when George Bush, then a candidate, described Adam oh, Clymer as yes. a major league you-know-what. Right. Uh, that's, you know, it's, it's just one of those things that happens. I mean, in this case, I know I've been told that Biden kind of likes to call on the conservative reporters and the Fox reporters to quote, expose them for what they are in quote. So he, he definitely had a, you know, he, he definitely had some, he said, you know, he did that at the press conference last week. He called on a couple yeah, of uh, yeah. oh. reporters from conservative outlets. So um, also the question, I mean, Peter Ducey is not very popular in the white house because people feel like he only asks, when are you going to stop beating your wife questions? And the question 
here was, hey, inflation's really going to hurt you, isn't it, Mr. President? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of liked Biden's initial answer. No, it's an asset. And I thought that was pretty funny. But yeah, he probably shouldn't. Have, he probably shouldn't have gone on and made it so personal. He probably should have just said it was a blanking, stupid question or something like that. But I don't think it's a particularly big deal. You know, uh, what I thought was most interesting is the president, of course, called Ducey that night to say, hey, you know, nothing personal. Uh, but then Ducey said, well, Mr. President, I always try to ask a question that nobody else is going to ask. Right. I mean, and Biden said, you've got to, which which I thought really showed a lot about Biden's understanding of what the reporter's job is. Anyway. Oh, Biden gets it. Biden gets it for sure. Now, he understands what Ducey's doing. And I think Ducey understands what Biden is doing. So. It's all good. It, 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 these things happen. Yeah. Um, well, so sprinkled throughout our conversation has been the question of Ukraine, which is really a guessing game right now. I've never seen a time when the White House, the State Department, everybody admits they don't know what the hell um, Putin is going to end up doing. Um, what's your best guess, Jason? What are we headed for? Um, I mean, it, it seems like, you know, Putin has already accomplished his goal in 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 a lot of ways, which is you know the 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 instability of the West to keep people going. I mean, this is I mean, this guy did run the KGB, right? You know, so he he is an expert at at keeping people off balance. I don't think that like as long as he is in office, that Ukraine will ever sleep easy. You know, with you know without one eye open. Um, I would guess that you know, maybe there's some sort of event, who knows, but uh, I mean, a full scale war with a lot of, you know, you know, casualties and so forth that I, I just have a tough time thinking that, that Putin thinks that that is a good idea at this point where, you know, he can, Mm -hmm. if he were to back off right now and say like, well, you know, we got what we accomplished. We, you know, we sort of, you know, called attention to the imperialism of the West and and all this kind of stuff. And we're going to keep fighting. You know, I mean, he he's got an iron grip, you know, on on the press in in Russia, so he can spin it however he wants, and he really doesn't care what we think as long as we're you know sort of guessing and, and scratching our heads. Uh, and I think that this is just more of the same. So, I mean, I I really hope that it doesn't get into any like sort of tragic moorings. I mean, you know, you, you when when major news outlets all start moving and, and broadcasting and so forth from Kiev, I mean, it, it sort of sends a chill down, and we're talking about right. you know like all kinds of all kinds of problems but i just feel like you know putin has kind of gotten some of he's already accomplished some of his goals which is to scare everybody and keep everybody on their toes and so he, he, if he can get away without having to inflict mass casualties on his own or in ukraine he's already kind of won well people certainly are concerned ginger and as jason points out you know it, it leads almost every newscast and front page of the papers but the american are the american people ready for war in Ukraine? I think that's going to be a very difficult sell for the American people. The American people who we've already said at length are dealing with economic struggles who are still coming out of this pandemic, who um, are not going to be particularly interested in footing the bill um, for someone, what they will view as someone else's war and excursion in to Ukraine, uh, you know, t- try to explain Article 5 to the American people that we need to send troops to Romania is not exactly going to be um, an easy sell. And so I think you're right. I think it is a difficult argument. And I think that Putin 
it clearly understands that. Um, and to Jason's point is getting some things, right? He's getting people scared. He's trying to extract um, concessions about NATO, about the Ukraine status in NATO. Um, you know, he, he really doesn't want anybody on his border that would be entitled to Article 5 protections. And so uh, he's doing nearly whatever it would take to stop that. Um, and, and, and so I, I, I do think that it's going to be hard to convince the American people. And, and frankly, in part, because we didn't really do a good job of explaining to the American people, particularly Article 5, the only time it's ever been invoked prior, which was to come to the aid of the United States. Um, and so I think that also makes it hard to make this sell. Right. So, David, I'm curious about how the Republicans, what the Republican position on this is, because, and Jason alluded to this earlier, I believe, um, on the one hand, you've got Jim Inhofe and Mitch McConnell, others saying Biden's not doing enough, right? He's got to be tougher. And then you've got uh, Tucker Carlson and other Trumpers saying, no, we ought to be supporting Russia, not Ukraine. <laughs> so what's the Republican position on this? Oh, Do they, well, they really don't have one. I don't think they're anti-Russian, but you're right. I mean, the, the truck, Tucker Carlson, you know, Donald Trump on taunt, and they've really put pressure on uh, Republicans to, t- to take Russia's side in this is amazing yeah. as it sounds. Uh, I just think it's yet another, it's it's yet emblematic of the, the, the basic problem the Republicans have with Trump because it's uh, it's really splitting the party and on this on, on this issue in particular. But I, I think basically the Republican Party doesn't, you know, opposes a Russian invasion of Ukraine, but they're, they're really not going to do, do anything about it if it happens. And it's more about them contending with the, the Trump wing of their party. Well, the idea of supporting Russia in an invasion of Ukraine is certainly not one that the American people are going to support. I mean, no, it's, 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 it's incredible. I mean, just look at the relationship that Russia and Trump had and vice versa. It's, 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 it's really a, it's really, it's a topsy turvy world uh, both in American politics and in international relations. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a, uh, it's interesting to watch them sort of um, try to. By the way, one thing about Putin is I can't yeah. I can't help but think about the fact that you know he invaded Georgia near the start of the right. 2008 Summer Olympics. Yeah. Well, the Winter Olympics in China begin a week a week from today, next Friday. So I, and, I and think he'll be there. Something. He, yeah, he'll be there for the opening. Right. Or right. Scheduled so to it's, be. It's going to be interesting. And let's also not forget that he did invade Ukraine once uh, and seized Crimea. Uh, when President Obama was in the White House and got away with it, so um, that's that, that's uh, put that in context uh, as well. All right, so lots going on, lots to talk about. Uh, we don't want to let you go though without um, of all the stories this week that we did or did not talk about. Which one was the one that caught your attention the most? Your favorite story of the week, uh, Ginger? Start us off. Yeah, so I'm going to point you to a story that actually got done by one of my reporters this week I thought was really great and really an important thing to do. Alex Seitzwald wrote a story this week about the non-Trump Republicans um, that are disappearing. Um, They're really the end of them. Larry Hogan, Charlie Baker, uh, Arizona Mm. Governor Ducey. Uh, He talked to Larry Hogan about what this means for the future of their party. And um, they really are the last ones. I mean, there's probably a handful in Congress left. Um, maybe, maybe two, um, but, uh, it is, it is a moment that should not be lost on us that the state houses and the governors were really sort of the, the counterforce to Trump that remained and that we're able to be independent of them. And they, they are slipping away. Very interesting because there are, of course, those voices like Charlie Sykes and Bill Crystal, right. And, uh, uh, Christine Todd Whitman, um, 
uh, and others who are still trying to get back to the, the old Republican Party, but you're saying is the office holders, right, who dared stand up to Trump are disappearing. Uh, Alex Seitzwald, he's one of our best guests on the roundtable, and he's one of your best reporters uh, as well. That's great. David Jackson, what caught your attention? Well, I was going to talk about the NFL playoffs, but we've got breaking news here that I've been that I oh. think would be interesting. The White House cat All right. has arrived. <laughs> Willow, a gray cat from Pennsylvania, who caught the first lady's eye during some appearance she made. Cat snuck up on stage with the first lady, and she took quite a shine to her. Well, well, he is now the, the latest. He or she is now the latest uh, White House resident, and uh, so yeah, the White House finally has a cat. It's something people have been asking about for months. I, we wonder how the first cat will get along with the first dog. Oh, I don't know. You know, those Biden dogs have been known to be kind of tested. It could be a rivalry. Uh, I have to point out that I have a, a granddaughter, wonderful granddaughter, by the name of Willow. There you so, go. Yeah. There you go. And, of course, Willow's from California. So I see what they go. All right. The first cat. And uh, Jason. I, I am looking forward to the first White House cat videos. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, you know. Uh, <laughs> oh, they'll get here. Oh, you know. Rest assured. Coming. Oh, yeah. Uh, mine, mine is a little weird, uh, but it's not about movies, Bill. So oh, no. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it is still uh, in, in the art sphere. Uh, one of my uh, kind of go-to uh, uh, authors, you know, writers that I always uh, – you know, head towards every week is Michael Durda in the Washington Post. Oh yeah. He's he great. always, always has a weird, you know, take on books or he's reading some 16th century manuscript or something like that. And he had this, uh, it, it was actually kind of personal kind of journey. Like uh, it, this past week, he went up to New York. Uh, he was a little, uh, a little concerned about it just because it was during Omicron, but he, you know, he went up to New York last week. Uh, he's boosted and vaxxed and, and so forth for the annual meeting of the Baker Street Irregulars uh, in 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 New York City, this is a, a group of, of Sherlock Holmes fans. Uh, they they collect uh, manuscripts, ephemera. Uh, you know, it, it's a it's it's a wonderful geeky uh, world of mystery mm-hmm. aficionados and and all things Sherlockian. And the way that he, he the way that he was able to communicate just how odd this is, and at the same time, sort of inviting people in was just a real pleasure to read. Uh, Michael Durda, he's a a great writer and a great book collector. Uh, He hangs out at Capitol Hill Books, which is a favorite haunt of Jason's and mine here on Capitol Hill. Uh, So my favorite story of the week is along those lines. uh, I'm sure you heard about and Maybe some of you took part in uh, the auction that occurred for the personal library of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, like many of us in Washington, she had a library full of a lot of books that had been signed uh, to her, inscribed to her. Bonhams got a hold of her library. Uh, They put it up for auction. Uh, It included her her college yearbooks, these books that had been signed to her, uh, her favorite novels. uh, And they had a total price of $60,000 $60,000 for the whole lot, which is about 3,000 books. The interest in Ruth Bader having owning a book that Ruth Bader Ginsburg once owned was so phenomenal that they actually pulled in $2.4 million, 3,900% over what they expected. <laughs> uh, and they, look, for example, 
a co- her copy of Beloved, signed by Toni Morrison, sold. It was uh, put up there for a bid of fifty thousand fifty. I'm sorry, five hundred dollars sold for thirty one thousand six hundred dollars. Uh, Gloria Steinem's memoir, which had been listed at six hundred dollars, sold for fifty two thousand eight hundred dollars. So, hey, folks, all of us have a lot of books on our shelves. This is a this is a sign of hope. Here's what to do, right? Put your book up for auction. If only uh, we had the celebrity of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it might work. But that's there are a lot of people out there still interested in book collecting and. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it shows, is still uh, a very popular person and celebrity and will be probably forever. Hey, what a great roundtable. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. David Jackson from USA Today, Ginger Gibbs, NBC News Digital, and Jason Dick, of course, from CQ Roll Call. We thank you, panelists, and we thank you all, listeners, for being here with us again. Have a great weekend. Please continue to take all the precautions necessary to deal with Omicron and then come back next week for the next edition of the of Bill Press Pod, talking to Elizabeth Widra, head of the Constitutional Accountability Center. We're going to do a deep dive with Elizabeth into the, to the term of Justice Stephen Breyer on the bench, his legacy uh, about his possible successor and the direction that the court is taking these days. Elizabeth Widra with us next Tuesday. Again, have a great weekend. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.